Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 10th through Saturday the 12th feature guest conductor Kiro Karavitz and pianist Sunwoo Kim. The program includes Overture on Hebrew Themes by Prokofiev, with Sun Yu Kim, Mendelssohn's Piano Concerto No. 1 and the Capriccio Brilliant in B minor, and after intermission, Concerto for Orchestra by Witold Ludoswowski. Here are program notes by Philip Huscher on Mendelssohn's Piano Concerto No. 1. The performance time, around 20 minutes. It was no one less an artist and experienced traveler than Goethe who suggested Mendelssohn take a journey through Italy. Mendelssohn had first met Goethe in 1821, when the composer was only 12 years old, the great poet was 72, and he continued to visit him in Weimar throughout the 1820s. Despite his astonishing early success as a composer, he wrote the lovely Octet at 16 and his masterpiece, The Overture to a Midsummer Night's Dream, at 17, Mendelssohn, like all the composers of his generation, failed to win Goethe's go-ahead to set Faust to music. But if Goethe never fully understood music after Mozart, he and Mendelssohn evidently enjoyed a pleasant, and certainly for Mendelssohn, fulfilling friendship. When talk turned to music, Goethe wasn't always as sympathetic as Mendelssohn was to their discussions of philosophy and art. More than once, Mendelssohn tried to convert Goethe to Beethoven's cause without success. When Mendelssohn visited Goethe in May 1830, just before he set off for Italy, he didn't realize that it was the last time the two would meet. At this encounter, Mendelssohn played his own music, plus works of Bach and Weber, and tried to interest the 80-year-old master in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Still defeated in bringing Goethe's musical tastes up to date, Mendelssohn set off for Italy with Goethe's blessing, stopping in Munich, Salzburg, Linz, Vienna, and landing in Venice on October 9th. He spent the next nine months wandering the Italian countryside with extended stays in Florence, Naples, and Rome, where he met Berlioz and began his new A major symphony, later called The Italian. Mendelssohn said he conceived his G minor piano concerto entirely in his head while he was in Rome, and judging from spontaneous-sounding music and his apparent gift for creating music out of thin air with little difficulty, his claim seems reasonable. He admitted that putting the work on paper took him three days once he returned to Munich, where he played the first performance on October 17, 1831, I was received with loud and long applause, but I was modest and would not reappear. Soon, the modest composer would have to confess that his first important concerto, there were five earlier ones, including one for solo piano and two for two pianos, had taken the musical community by storm. And that, helped by the endorsement of Clara Schumann and Franz Liszt, it was played all the time. In his classic Evenings with the Orchestra, that extraordinary fictitious account of musical life that's filled with more truths than many historical volumes, Berlioz describes a piano competition in which all 31 candidates must play Mendelssohn's G minor concerto. Berlioz writes, Cohen, number 30, comes on, sits down at the piano without looking at the keyboard, and plays his concerto very well. 
but after the final chord, just as he was leaving his seat, the piano, without a word, begins the concerto all over again by itself. In desperation, the jurors called for Monsieur Erard, who built the piano. Monsieur Erard arrives, but try as he will, the piano, which is out of its mind, has no intention of mining him either. He sends for holy water and sprinkles the keyboard with it in vain, proof that it wasn't witchcraft, but the natural result of thirty performances of one concerto. They take the instrument and remove the keyboard, still moving up and down, and throw it into the middle of the courtyard next to the warehouse. There, Monsieur Erard, in a fury, has it chopped up with an axe. You think that did it? It made matters worse. Each piece danced, jumped, frisked about separately on the paving stone, between our legs, against the wall, and in all directions, until the locksmith of the warehouse picked up his bedeviled mechanism in one armful and flung it into the fire of his forge to put an end to it. Monsieur Mendelssohn won't be able to complain that his music isn't being played, but think of the damage. Mendelssohn certainly never complained that the G minor concerto was neglected. In fact, he seemed astonished at its popularity. I wrote it in but a few days, and almost carelessly. Nonetheless, it always pleased people the most, though me, very little. Perhaps he was only surprised, not for the first time, at how easily he could capture the public's fancy. Despite its ebullient character and insistence on light-hearted, self-congratulatory bravura, the G minor concerto is not without serious, notable innovations. When the piano enters with arresting flourishes after a few bars of gearing up from the orchestra, it's not just peeking in at the start, as in Beethoven's famous example in the Fourth and Emperor concertos, only to disappear while the orchestra continues. Instead, Mendelssohn has abandoned one of the concerto's oldest conventions and allows his soloist to engage continuously in a dialogue with the orchestra from the start. Again, taking his cue from Beethoven and going one step further, Mendelssohn links his three movements into one, using brief fanfare-like passages to lead from the impetuous opening Molto Allegro to the delicate Andante and on to the rousing finale. The Andante is a song without words, with its lovely melody passing from the violas and cellos to the piano and back again, while the piano traces an endless filigree. The brilliant headlong finale, with its grand bravura, reminds us of Monsieur Arad's deranged piano, endlessly flinging out turns and trills like rockets, tremolos, runs of sixth and thirds in octaves, chords of ten notes, triple trills, a cascade of sound, the loud pedal, the devil, and all his train. Program notes by Philip Husher on Felix Mendelssohn's Piano Concerto Number no. 1. And now on to Witold Ludoswowski's Concerto for Orchestra, a work lasting about 30 minutes. Witold Ludoswowski's was the first important concerto for orchestra composed in the shadow of Bartok's great work, but that appears to have inspired rather than intimidated him. Bartok served as a touchstone, a reminder of what could be done within a certain style and with a specific aim. For Litoswowski, as for Bartok, the concerto for orchestra was intended as a reflection on the unprecedented virtuosity of the modern orchestra. 
The hallmarks of Bartok's masterwork are here as well. The arch form of the first movement, the broad chorale of the last, a certain similarity of gesture, tone, and language that's easy to hear, although less simple to pinpoint in the score, and yet Ludoslavsky's score is entirely his own. Ludoslavsky's Musique Funèbre, written four years later, was dedicated to Bartok's memory. Still, another composer links Bartok's and Ludoslavsky's concertos. In the fourth movement of his work, Bartok parodies the battle music from Dmitry Shostakovich's Leningrad Symphony. In the Toccata section of his finale, Ludoslavsky inscribes Shostakovich's well-known musical monogram, D-S-C-H, or D-E-flat-C-B-natural, as translated into musical notation. But the references are quite different. Bartok intended a sly comment about artistic merit. For Ludoslavsky, Shostakovich represented a major composer responding through his music to a political crisis, a concern he understood only too well. In 1948, Ludoslavsky's first symphony was banned by the Polish government. The music written during the next years, culminating in this concerto for orchestra, was his response. In 1988, Ludoslavsky talked with Alan Kozin of the New York Times about this period. The government stopped interfering with our musical life very early, probably because they decided that music is not an offensive art. It's not semantic. It doesn't carry meaning in the same way literature, poetry, theater, and film do. So they are not interested in it. I have never felt any pressure to write a certain way, but after my first symphony, I realized that I was writing in a style that was not leading me anywhere. So I decided to begin again, to work from scratch on my sound language. Obviously, I could not immediately begin writing concert works, so I wrote functional music children's music, easy piano pieces, and small ensemble works. I did it with pleasure because Poland was devastated after the war, and this educational music was necessary. Eventually, I developed a style that combined functional music with elements of folk music and occasionally with non-tonal counterpoints and harmonies. The concerto for orchestra was the climax of this nationalistic, folk-based music, a work that not only spoke to a politically defeated people at the time, but also continues to touch musicians of many lands today. Shortly after writing the concerto, Ludoslavsky's sound language changed again. In 1960, he heard part of a radio broadcast of John Cage's Piano Concerto, a work that leaves much to chance and is therefore different at every performance. Ludoslavsky remembers that those few minutes were to change my life decisively. It was a strange moment. I suddenly realized that I could compose music differently from that of my past. And so the rest of his career, including the third symphony commissioned by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, was spent exploring and perfecting this new language, one that is based on the juxtaposition of ad-lib passages with strictly controlled music. In an interview given in 1973, Ludoslavsky expressed surprise at the continuing interest in his early concerto for orchestra, calling it the only serious piece among the folk-inspired works of the period immediately following the war. On another occasion, he said, I wrote as I was able since I could not yet write as I wished. His dismissive attitude recalls Bartok, who kept reassigning opus numbers to his scores each time, excluding the earliest works that no longer pleased him. 
In this respect, the concertos for orchestra by Bartok and Ludoswowski differ. Bartok's came very late in his career. It is technically the last music he finished, although the third piano concerto was nearly complete at his death, and finds him at the summit, commanding the language in a way that only years of work and understanding make possible. Ludoswowski's early concerto for orchestra in no way suggests the direction his music would take. Borrowing Bartok's favored arch form, the first movement begins and ends with imitative writing set against repeated F-sharps, pounding drums in the beginning, the tinkling celesta at the end. Structurally, the movement is most closely modeled on the opening of Bartok's music for strings, percussion, and celesta. Midway, the music reaches several big engulfing climaxes punctuated by screaming brass. At least two themes are based on Polish folk songs, although Ludoswowski, unlike Bartok, treats them like raw material rather than cultural artifacts. The middle movement captures something of Bartok's famous night music, although for Ludoswowski, night is a time of furtive activity rather than mysterious calm. Again, the form is symmetrical, with quickly moving music for strings and winds, framing a slower section for brass. This central arioso, sung first by the trumpets, brings the movement to a terrifying climax. From there, the music flickers and dies. The final bars are a duet for tenor drum and bass drum marked triple P. The harps and double basses quietly launch the finale, eventually stating the Pasacalia theme based on a folk song that will serve as the foundation for 15 variations, all carefully dovetailed and growing in intensity and activity until the last, which recedes into silence. Ludoswowski then launches a powerful, bustling toccata. The music finally dissolves to reveal a solemn chorale intoned by the winds the Ghost of Bartok, again, the resemblance to the chorale in the second movement of Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra is clearly intentional, and then the music turns lively and sweeps to its conclusion. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Vito Velosławski's Concerto for Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.